so sure. If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Let me set this up if I may. The danger, we all face a danger of flawed impressions, flawed impressions of vital important things, vitally important things. We all face the dire danger of having flawed impressions of vitally important things. Thing. Some of you may be familiar with a film that's out right now. I actually haven't seen it, believe it or not. Uh, First Man. Uh, it's the story of Neil Armstrong and the Apollo 11 uh, landing upon the moon in July of 1969. Uh, of course, if you know anything about uh, that era of our history, the Apollo program was just tremendously successful. In fact, it was so successful that it was cut short several missions. There were several more missions that were planned for NASA to send Apollo astronauts to the moon, you could almost say that the Apollo program was a victim of its own success. But it was not so certain in the early going, in the planning stages for those missions as to just how was this going to go? Was this going to be possible? What were they going to be facing? For instance, in the early 60s and the mid-60s, as the scientists were even beginning to ask the question, what was the surface of the moon like so that we can plan as to what the, how to design these landers. Some scientists were wondering for quite some period of time, it, given the fact that there's no atmosphere up there, and there's no wind, and there's no rain, and they're in no erosion, are the mountains just huge and jagged and rugged? And is that what they're going to be facing as they're trying to maneuver and make their way down towards the surface? Or even beyond that, what is it just like once they land on the surface? Some thought that the, the lunar dust was so thick thick and the moon was just so full of it that anything that would touch down would just be sucked in and lost. Let's, I would say pretty good that they figured all that out because obviously the story of that first landing would have gone a whole lot differently if they hadn't been able to, to plan, if they hadn't gotten their impressions straight. There's, in, whether we're talking, that's where I'm going with this, whether we're talking about uh, pioneering voyages to outer space or the everydayness of our very lives, we all face a danger of having flawed impressions of vitally important things. Matthew 19, that's where we are in our study in the Gospel of Matthew. It's been a little while since we were there, so if you have forgotten where it was, it is the first of the four Gospels in the New Testament. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're in Matthew 19, uh, towards the end of chapter 19, but not quite, we're not going to quite get there today. We're going to start in verse 16 and go down to verse 22. Not a long text, but pretty thick in terms of what we find there. Uh, Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 22. Hear now the word of God. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life... Keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, 
where he had great possessions. Let's pray together. Lord, we have sung an absolutely gorgeous song a few moments ago with a question and an answer. The question couldn't have been plainer, and nor could the answer have been, are you worthy? Uh, indeed, you are. And yet, we can see a, certainly a very real, vivid example in which this man was unable to see that and grapple with that and come to terms with that. And there are surely, even as surely as we sung that beautifully a few moments ago, there's a lot in our lives that's not so beautiful and does not square with what we've sung in terms of the degree to which we believe that you are worthy. And so we ask that you would give us insight this morning into this text, this account, uh, this, this event that is recorded for us here in Matthew's gospel. And we also have to confess from the outset the only way that we are going to come to grips with this at any heart level is if you, the one who was speaking to him that day, speaks directly to us now. And you're the only one that can. You're the only one that can. And so we ask you to do that now. Amen. I came across a rather interesting news piece this past week. I want to lead off with this, if I may. Uh, Mary McClorine has an unusual condition called developmental topographical disorientation, DTD. This means she cannot form a mental map or image of her surroundings. Unlike most people, Mary has no internal compass, and this is how she describes one particular very real scary incident in her life. This goes way beyond I'm directionally challenged, and I, can't, I don't know north and south, and I'm no good with directions. This is that on steroids. I was staying at a friend's house and decided to take their dog Otis for a walk. As I started back, I had no idea where I was. I was only blocks from where I had started my walk, but I was lost. Fear and adrenaline pulsed through my veins, and I began to sweat profusely. My surroundings looked completely unfamiliar. It was as though I'd been dropped into the middle of a foreign land. I hadn't written down the address of the home where I was staying. Walking in any direction would be just a guess. Am I getting closer to or farther away? Would I have to have to knock on someone's door to use their phone to call the police? How could I expect them to return me to a place if I had no address to provide? Fortunately, Mary did find somebody that got her back to where she needed to be. With DDT, however, there is no brain injury. It's not a car accident, no brain tumor, no stroke. People who have this condition basically get lost every day in the most familiar surroundings. be so hard. It's a very real problem for her. She goes through life with this continual sensation. The right way to go is often not what she thinks it is. The right way to go is often not what she thinks it is. Okay, let's go back. Let's go into Matthew. Keep that. Let's, let's preserve that for a moment. Keep it there. Matthew's gospel. Where are we? Again, it's been a while since we uh, have been in this study. So just real quickly, uh, we, in this portion of the, um, the narrative, the, the history unfolding here as Matthew relays it to us, the Galilee ministry that's taken up so much of Matthew's account is over. 
Jesus and his disciples are moving south towards Jerusalem, where everything is going to come to a climax in the coming weeks, as he records for us. And chapters 19 through 20 specifically have to do with life in the kingdom, the, the kingdom community. Life in Jesus' kingdom specifically, his rule, his reign on this earth that was begun, that was inaugurated with his first coming to this earth. Life in his kingdom. And when you get to this point in Matthew 19, what you have very directly are some questions being raised about entry into his kingdom. How do I enter the kingdom? How do I become a citizen of the kingdom? What does that mean? What does that require? And what comes out very clearly here in this passage is the way to, to, the way to entry into the kingdom is not what we think. Going back to uh, poor Mary McLaurin, the way is not what we think. The way of entry into the kingdom of God is not what we think. The, or maybe just put it in more plain language, the way to know God. The way to know God is not what we think. And so we simply must listen to Jesus and hear what he has to say. Very simple, very profound, oh so vital. The way to know God is not what we think. We must then listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus and hear what he says. Specifically in this passage, three things in your outline. First, we need to come to to grips with, grapple with the absolute goodness of God. That's the first thing. The second thing is the critical place of the law, and by that I mean God's moral commands. And then thirdly, come to grips, come to grapple with our desperate need of Jesus. That's progression. It's moving right through those three things in order. In order, you see it in the passage, and also it's logically as well. The absolute goodness of God, the critical place of the law, and our desperate need of Jesus. Let's look at this together for a few minutes. Matthew 19, verses 16 through 17, we begin to grapple with the absolute goodness of God. Let's look at it again. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, What good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Let's stop there for a moment. You know, it's oftentimes said by an instructor in engaging with an audience, that's a good question. This was not. This was a terrible question. Oh, it revealed much of the man's heart. And in that sense, it was good that he asked. But it was a terrible question. What is he asking? He is asking, what good thing or body of things are necessary for me to do in order to be saved, in order for me to enter the kingdom, in order for me to be a citizen of your kingdom? What good thing or series of things, body of things, must I do for that to be the case? Now, what is he assuming? That's what he's asking, what he's assuming. What do I need to do? The assumption driving that question is there's something I can do. And it's a terribly flawed assumption. Now, in asking his question, Jesus is responding to that question 
In asking that question, this man is assuming yet another assumption that Jesus' answer, of course, will be tied to and flow from directly his question. If you think through just on the surface, the question that's asked and the answer that's given, you're like, what? Is there something missing here? Am I missing something here? Well, we need to understand that Jesus uh, understands the man's assumptions, and he wants to take an indirect route to get to his heart, and so he's redirecting the conversation. And that's why it doesn't seem, his answer doesn't quite seem to fit the question, because he's got to redirect from this man, his, his attention, his thinking is fixated on what is good. What is good? Jesus is not interested in talking about that. He wants to talk about who is good. And that's what this man needs to grapple with. This man needs to grapple with the absolute goodness of God. And so do we. And so do we. If anyone would come to know the true and living God, they have to begin with grappling with the absolute goodness of God. We have to, as he needed to, stop playing the game of comparisons. Looking to the left, looking to the right, selectively, selectively comparing how I'm doing with how you're doing and how you're doing with how I'm doing, and just in that game, forfeit, we're done. Just calling, just forfeiting, calling it quits to that game of that game of comparisons, this game where we are trying to weigh and assess ourselves compared to our fellow flawed human beings, a comparison that doesn't matter at all, and do business with the one comparison that does matter. Comparing ourselves with the one whose glory, whose holiness is blazing white hot. That's the only comparison that matters. And that's where Jesus is taking this man in the redirecting of his question. So again, back to what I said earlier, the way to know God, the way to know God is not what we expect. So we must begin with listening to Jesus, listening to Jesus, hearing what he's saying. Okay, then that begs the question, how do we come to know the absolute goodness of God? I mean, really, seriously, how does a, a human being come to understand? How do you come to grapple with and come to grips with the absolute goodness of God? By grappling with, by coming to grips with the critical place of the law, God's moral commands, and, do, and, and letting them speak to our hearts. That's what we see is going on here as Jesus gives him a, a quizzical answer to his terrible question. Let's pick up where we left off. Verse 17 why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, I'm going to stop there again. First off, recognize Jesus in no way here is saying you can be saved by your morality. You can be saved by your goodness. You can be saved by obeying the law. He is not saying that at all. He's simply meeting this man on his own terms. He recognizes this is what this guy thinks. 
I'm going to enter his world and deal with his assumptions and his presuppositions and all of that. He knows where this guy is, and he's walking into that, okay? He is anything but. In fact, we're about to get, toward, get towards the end. You realize it's, any, it's just completely the opposite of saying that Jesus somehow is saying you can be saved by your, your goodness, your morality, your standards, and all of that. No, he is meeting him where he is, and he is pressing in. He is pressing in, in particular, on the critical place, the purpose for which God has given us the law, his moral commands. Partly, I'm just going to cover two of those this morning. One of those is meant to be an expression. The moral commands of God, the law, is meant to be an expression. Expression of what? An expression of God's character. It's a manifestation of his priorities, a revelation of his heart. You want to know something of the heartbeat of God? Look at the moral law. What he says is good. What, that, how, what we ought to give ourselves towards. That's certainly something to, to consider. Um, so it's meant to be an expression of his character, his priorities, his heart, in terms of our obedience to his commands, it is also an element of expression there uh, as well. Uh, it's meant to be an expression of our belief, an expression of, of trust. In no way, in no way is our obedience to his commands supposed to earn his favor, merit anything, but rather it is a response, a desire to please the one who takes such pleasure in us already. That's part of what the moral law is for. But it's not just that, to serve as an expression. It's also meant to serve as a conviction. The moral law is not just meant, God's commands are not just meant to serve as a, as a map, if you will, to guide us, although it is that, and a precious thing it is in that. But it's also meant to serve as a mirror, as a mirror that we could look into and have our hearts exposed. That we would see, that we would come to know the bentness, the crookedness, the perversity of our heart and how deep and deep and deep it goes. This is why Jesus tells us it's not enough. It's not enough to ask yourself, have I murdered? We have to grapple with, have we hated? It's not enough to ask ourselves, have I committed adultery? we have to grapple with the question, have I lusted? He's interested in the heart. And as we grapple with his commands, what we come to recognize is it was like how far down they go, these commands, and how far they, they reach that has an exposing effect upon our, our hearts. Specifically in this man's case, you, you can certainly see it here. Jesus presses on him Several commands that you can see in the second half of the Ten Commandments, and then also the second of the greatest commandments, to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what's interesting in is that these are probably, you could really make a case, these are some of the most outwardly observable commands that he could say, hey, this is what you, you need to, to be aware of and adhere to. And again, why? Because he's meeting him where he is, and he's pressing in, pressing in, 
desiring that this man would begin to be exposed to himself, recognizing the absolute goodness of God. And he desperately needed that, as do we. As do we need to come to grapple, to come to, to grips with, grapple with the absolute goodness of God through what we see in his moral commands, the necessity, the critical place of the law in our lives as it exposes us and helps us to see, let me just put it this way. As that kind of exposure takes place in the life of a religious church-going person, which this guy was when you think about it, transpose him into our context, this rich young ruler, as he's referred to in the other Gospels, as that exposing exercise, work, is taking place in, a, in the life of a religious church-going person, what begins to happen? You begin to grapple with this reality. I don't obey his commands as he intends to the fullest because I can't. I don't because I can't. I don't do good. I can't do good because fundamentally, I'm not good. There's only one who is. God himself. That's what Jesus is pressing upon this man, and that's the very thing that if anyone would know the true and living God and come to be in relationship with him, must come to grips with these things. The absolute goodness of God through the vehicle of his commands and this exposing effect. Again, the way to know him is not what we think. It's not by a list of achievements. It's not by a list of avoidances. It's something else entirely. And so we desperately need to listen to him and hear what he is saying, which then takes us to the third point. Where does that bring us? just beginning to grapple with these things, the absolute goodness of God and the critical place of the law, it takes us to our desperate need of Jesus, the very one who's saying these things. Our desperate need of him. Verses nine, excuse me, uh, chapter 19, picking up now in verses 20 through 22. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Oh, we need him. We need Jesus to redeem us, to pull us out of our bondage and set us free from the enslavement of our, to our sin. How desperately we need his redeeming work to suffer what we deserve, the just sentence of eternal death that we deserve, how desperately we need him to suffer that, to, to die in our place. And not only that, to, to live in our place, that his righteous record of his life would be transferred into ours. How desperately we need him. 
this redeeming work to die in our place and to live in our place. We're desperate for him. And if you, if you put your hope, if you put your faith in, the, in him and what he has done, then you've got it. That very thing is having died and lived in your place and the assurance that it's over and it's finished. But how do you come to recognize that? How do you come to a place where you can even believe that and entrust yourself to that? We need not only his once-for-all work of redeeming us, but this work that he continues to do today. And if you are a follower of his today, he's done that work in your life to reveal that to you, to open your blind eyes to see that. And we, this man needed that. We all need this to see what? First, that we are delusional. We are absolutely delusional, as this man was. Just think with me. If you go back and read through Matthew 19, not just Matthew 19, all of Matthew's gospel, but I'll just say specifically Matthew 19, and the passage immediately preceding what we just read here, Jesus says that the way to be saved, the way to enter his kingdom, is to come to him as a child. to come to him humbly and dependently with trust. That's in the text immediately preceding what we read just a little while ago here for this morning. And yet this man who had to have heard what Jesus has said comes to him with no language whatsoever, no follow-up questions. Can you tell me more about that? But rather, what do I need to do? What he's trying to do, whether he recognizes it or not, is to find a way to do something to indebt God to him so that God owes him entry into the kingdom. I'll do this, now you owe me that. A quid pro quo. Listen, there are a lot of images given to us of the living God in the scriptures. A lot of them. Father, shepherd, rock, king, debtor is not one. Debtor is not on the list of the images of God. We are delusional, just as much as this man was. And we are, we are idolaters. We are idolaters, putting our hope and trust in all the wrong things. That's where it's worth raising the point, and just, well, just making the point, and we'll, Lord willing, get into this a little bit next week. Not everyone is called to sell everything and give everything away as this man was in order to follow Jesus. Now, Jesus knew this man's heart. And because money had such a grip on his heart, and that was where his heart was, Jesus knows that's what it was going to take for him. This was specific for him. If you, oh man, are going to follow me, because your heart is so divided, you're going to have to divest yourself of all your possessions, sell it all to follow me. Sell it all to follow me. 
Such is, such was his desperate need of Jesus to be reoriented towards him. That said, there is a certain sense in which we do, all of us, have to sell all we have to follow him and give it all away. And by that, what I mean is this. We all need to completely repent, that is, turn from whatever it is that we are trusting and serving besides Jesus. Not a partial turn, not 179 degrees, but 180 degrees. Completely turn from that to him. In that sense, selling all and giving it all away. Whatever it is in our lives that we are finding our uh, purpose and meaning and security and identity, besides him, we need to turn from that we would then follow him. Again, the way to know God is not what we think. We simply must listen and hear what Jesus is saying here. Let's go to the ending, uh, the very ending of this as we uh, come to the end of the message it's a surprising ending, isn't it? How it, 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 well, it ends. We, if, if you've read through Matthew's gospel, and maybe this is up to this point, and you've never gotten through this account, you might have been expecting a different response. Verses 21 and 22. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Again, the hope is, is to explore this a little bit more in that passage as well as the following one next week. But I think it's worth raising a question at, at this point. Why, why did this man respond in this way? Because Jesus' shocking words were simply too much for him, quite literally. It was too much for him. Playing with the, the question and the answer of the song we sang earlier. Is he worthy? His answer was no. That was his answer. Perhaps another question is worth asking is, should it surprise us that Jesus' word on this point is so shocking? Should, us, should it surprise us that he is so surprising? Should it shock us that he is so shocking? When you, when you consider that time and again, either explicitly or implicitly in the Bible, we learn time and again that his ways are not our ways. And then we hear, as you, as you read through from Genesis to Revelation, of, of the absolute necessity of this work of rescue that has to come from outside ourselves. It has to come from outside ourselves, on the other side of the prison door. There's no latch on our side. It has to come from outside. This news of, of a rescuer come from heaven to earth to save us here on earth and actually the earth itself. Given the, the cosmic scope of all of that and the necessity of a rescue, should it surprise us that his words are surprising? Should it shock us that his response to this man's question is shocking. 
It may surprise us, it may shock us, but what it should do is give us joy. I want to end with a quick story. I thought of this on my way in just this morning. Um, years ago, when I was serving in a church in Peoria, I can remember sitting in my office with a, a lady uh, who had been visiting the church for some time, and she was interested in joining the church, and like we do here, it was just a slightly different system back in those days. Um, it was a necessity of what we call a membership interview, trying to discern where are you with your relationship with Jesus? And so we're, we're having a conversation about that. And, and I began to probe a little bit, and I asked her to the degree to which she was sure and certain of her relationship with God and, and how that could be. And she began with an answer that went something like this. Well, I, I try to give regularly and faithfully. Uh, there's an elderly neighbor down the apartment hallway from where I live, and I look in after him, and gave me a list of a whole bunch of other different things, and the subject of every sentence was me, me, me. And she started to slow down as she gave me this litany of her resume, and her eyes began to well up with tears because she said to me, and I hope that's enough. It's not. It can never be. She knew. She knew. This is a message of joy, my friends. Because of Jesus, there are no more hoops for us to jump through. We have nothing to prove. It's already been done. Ours is to but entrust ourselves to the one who's done it. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, you, you love this man so well. You fashioned him. You formed him. You were so well acquainted with him, so familiar with him. You were aware of his burdens, his struggles, his concerns, and the rivals and the sickness of his heart. And so you spoke to him as you did, and he did not hear. May we not make that same mistake this morning. Help us to hear the warning. Help us to hear the diagnosis and to hear the invitation. your name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask my fellow elders to come down front.